This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, bringing the figgy pudding all year long. Today, we're discussing Christmas music, that shared canon that stretches over centuries and most musical genres to give us warm feelings and or drive us crazy. I'm Mark Wintenmeyer, the loudest boy in the children's choir. Al. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm Al Baker from Leeds in the UK, and I don't have a Christmas one. I'm Al Baker from Leeds in the UK. Sarah Lynn. I'm Sarah Lynn Brock. I am a writer and a writing professor, and I have nothing Christmassy to share either, but I really enjoyed yours, Mark. Lawrence. Wow. My name is Lawrence Ware, coming from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and I have never had figgy pudding. I bet I had it as a stunt food at some at some church event as a child. I think it's just regular Christmas pudding. Do you have that in the US? What is, what's, what's Christmas pudding? No, yeah, I don't, what I've is never that? It it's a very dense suet-based object about the size of a softball, but when you eat it, it feels like you've eaten several cows. It just sits very, very heavily. Is it sweet? It's traditional, and sweet is one word for it. It's kind of cloying. It's the thing that you pour brandy over and set fire to it traditionally. It's also traditional in England. To, well, it's traditional to have it at the table. It's also traditional for no one to eat it because it's not actually very nice. Pretty much fruitcake. Is there dairy in it? I don't think there is a lot of dairy in it, no. Just very dense matter uh, cut through with raisins and alcohol and... Um, Wait, 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 wait. There's alcohol in it? So, okay, so, yeah, so, yeah. So you're, not, so you're eating alcohol. Oh, that's why it lights on fire. Yes. So it's soaked in brandy. The whole thing is soaked in brandy. But to serve it, you traditionally cover it in brandy and have like a... What's the thing where they set things on fire? What's that called? Flambe. 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 Yes. It's like a flambe softball. I have never heard of that before. Interesting. It must be a, a British thing. You are demonstrating, Al, though, that lots of folk traditions... We don't know what we're singing about. We don't, we don't know what these <laughs> damn songs are about exactly. A lot of the songs, how many people know the words to, I think King Wenceslas is one of the ones, like everybody knows one line of it. And then otherwise, if King you, who? If, wait, if you wait, have wait, the, King what? I used to play a cover of wait, No, 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 no. We can't King just Wenceslas go past at Christmas, so King I do know who? all the good words. King, already, did I say it wrong? Song. King Wenceslas? King Wenceslas, yeah. This is not part of your canon. I know the black Christmas songs you guys are King Winters? I've never heard of that in my life. It's something I kind of realized that that would be a thing coming to talk to you is when I was listening to all these Christmas songs, I realized how much of them like directly related to the Charles Dickens vision of Christmas, which is very tied up with a kind of English mythology. So it might be interesting to dispel several assumptions you may have about what Christmas is like back here, because it's probably not much different to what you'll do over there. <laughs> Although probably. maybe, maybe it is. Well, what about like caroling? Is caroling something that originated in the UK? I don't know if it originated here, but we certainly did it and still do it. It is still something you will find like well-meaning groups of middle-aged people going door to door singing Christmas carols. And the thing to do generally is to stand in the door and smile politely, then give them some money and they'll go away. They're like our, our version of a mariachi People actually band. carol? They actually carol? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, Sometimes uh, they, they go carol wasp. here. They carol with you, Sarah? Sometimes. I mean, in my neighborhood, we have kind of a close neighborhood community. And so before COVID, there was a group that would go around um, to everyone's house and you would be expected to give them alcohol to the grownups and candy canes to the kids. And some of them would be collecting money 
to donate somewhere. So a more labor-intensive trick-or-treating. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> more of a pain in the butt for everyone involved. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I have genuinely never seen anyone carol ever. I've never seen it happen before. But Lawrence, you're coming out of the church. So I actually was in kids' choir. A lot of my Christmas stuff was I really enjoyed, you know, the Angels We Have Heard on High. That was my favorite one. I sort of learned to do vocal harmonies from being in the choir and riffing on songs like that or, you know, being taught the alto or whatever, the lower part for kids on songs like that. But I'm surprised. So Lawrence, is that half your background with this as well before you came to the pop music landscape or like how different are those worlds for you in terms of the canon of Christmas music? So growing up, we didn't do very much at the church where I was around Christmas. I don't remember them doing that at at least. Now, the church where I am now, every single Christmas time up until COVID, they had what's called like a Christmas cantata where they would have in, you know, especially Christmas music. They bring in orchestra, trombones, all that kind of stuff. And it'd be like this big ordeal where we do this Christmas thing and you celebrate Christmas music and all that kind of stuff. But Christmas wasn't that big of a deal for me growing up. It became a much bigger deal once I got older and had kids. And then I began to have very strong opinions about which Christmas songs are good and bad and why I hate Mariah Carey's Christmas song and all that kind of stuff. And maybe it was because I was raised by a single mother. We didn't have that much money. It was kind of poor. So maybe that was the reason why, but it just wasn't that big of a deal for me as a kid. Sarah Lynn, where are you coming from on this? with the songs. I too was in a choir, church choir. I have a terrible voice. So I was mostly relegated to doing harmonies in the alto section. They gave me the least amount to do, but I really, really enjoyed it. I loved singing those songs. I've never been caroling, but I did enjoy singing in in a church choir for sure. And we were a pretty Christmassy home growing up. These days I'm, I'm married to a Jewish guy. And so we've had to navigate both holidays during December, which has actually been really fun in a lot of ways. But Josh gets pretty overwhelmed by all the Christmas crap at my mom's house. (laughs) Al, what's your starting point here? So Christmas, I was brought up in a not remotely religious family, but there was a big exception made for, so it was the kind of non-religious family where we were actively discouraged from doing anything religious. It was mainly my grandparents' influence who were extremely committed, extremely committed atheists, but Christmas was a huge exception. So my granddad, who was Jewish also, but went headlong into Christmas, along with my grandmother, who was a recovering Catholic, they took enormous amounts of joy in making everybody sing Christmas carols, particularly, even though no other religious art was really acceptable in that house. So it was a really peculiar exception to their hardcore secular lifestyle. So yeah, my childhood Christmases were kind of focused around there and there was lots of singing of carols. My mum was very into the Christmas pop stuff. So we always had like wham and uh, mud and all those kind of things playing in the background too. I guess I've got a real, I've got a real soft spot for the Christmas vibe and I'm surprisingly forgiving, I think, or I surprised myself at how forgiving I am of, of Christmas cheese. Even Mariah Carey and the like. And I'm not quite sure why that is. I think it's just pure sentimentalism. I won't even necessarily try and defend it, but maybe one of the reasons why, I don't know what you guys think. One of the interesting questions here, I think, is why are so many Christmas songs so bad? And maybe the reason is that they can afford to get away with it. But the same reason that Christmas cracker jokes are so bad, that Christmas is just a time when everyone lowers their standards. 
Well, maybe it is. You're right. I, I would <laughs> that we do lower our standards during the month of December, but it's also a time when it's just okay to be corny. It's okay to just be as sentimental and nostalgic and you know, it's okay to get a little weepy at uh, some of those corny Hallmark movies and stuff. Uh, and listen, speak and for listen yourself. It is not okay. It is not okay ever for me <laughs> to be corny. Now, I do love the Hallmark Christmas movies. I will admit that I love those. I love the Lifetime ones. I record them. I watch them religiously every single year. The same ones over and over again. But I know they're bad when I'm watching them. And then the Christmas songs, I know the bad ones, and I don't listen to the bad ones. I listen to the good ones. So I don't lower my standards ever. I completely reject that premise. It's okay to to lower your standards during the Christmas season. I put a link up in our Google page to the Ray Conniff album. And that was a constant in our house. You know, as soon as we put up that Christmas tree, that was the first record that we would put on the record player. And it is absolutely the most obnoxious, annoying Christmas album, but I love it. I love it. I can't go without hearing that at least once during the season. And it is so bad. It is so bad, so cheesy. And not exactly politically correct in all the right ways. It's not, but I think you've already gotten to it because it has to do with your nostalgia and has to do with your experience with it. And so that's the reason why people may lower their standards because when they were kids, they were exposed to bad music. And since they were exposed to bad music as kids, they didn't like listen to that bad music once again when they're, when they're adults. Maybe that's what's going on. I feel like my particular age group in like 1981, I would have been eight years old and very impressionable. And the the sounds that were coming out at that time, really the whole 80s, the 80s synth vibe sounds very Christmassy in itself. I was revisiting Fleetwood Mac because of Christine McVie just dying. And that 1986 album, Tango in the Night, they all sound like Christmas songs. Like that's the sound of the synths that they were using at the time. So it's sort of doubly nostalgic for me. Just the feel of that sonic that, you know, you can put jingle bells behind almost anything and maybe a bubbly synth. And there you go. It's now it's a Christmas song. Certainly the cliche of this whole thing is that Christmas songs are the things that are thrust upon us. And in my case, I don't go to malls anymore. So it's really just people in my house who would be like way into Christmas music. So growing up, I felt like Christmas songs were something that you would do, that we would sing them at church or whatever, or at school, there'd be like a thing with Jingle Bell Rock. It was probably the first time I'd heard that. It was like some school (laughs) presentation, but I wasn't really familiar until like my wife introduced me to these cassettes of like the standard versions. I didn't realize that you're going to have to hear that Brenda Lee version. You're going to have to hear that version of Santa Baby, that somehow, even though they've been done by so many people, there's like a definitive version. And it's very hard, even though they get covered every year by many artists and old artists will put out whole Christmas albums as, you know, sort of falling in the Elvis mode of a safe sort of thing to do. This is not going to be anybody's favorite album of ours, but they'll buy it if they like us. (laughs) You know, the monkeys have a Christmas album, et cetera. (laughs) Billy Idol has one too. (laughs) Why does everyone have a Christmas album? Is it just because, like, Bob Dylan has a Christmas album? Why does it's everybody... It's a bad Christmas album. That Bob Dylan Oh, it's terrible. terrible. It's terrible. But, it, but to be fair to Bob Dylan, it's no more terrible than, than most of his recent albums. Johnny Cash has a dreadful, dreadful Christmas album with a lot of narration on it. To be honest, I think the reason why people do Christmas albums is that it's simply, they sell. Like, around Christmas time... If you have a decent voice, so like Leslie Odom has a Christmas album that's actually pretty decent. PJ Morton, 
has a, a Christmas album that's pretty decent as well. Like, if you have a decent voice, that Christmas album is probably going to sell around Christmas time. And so I think it's probably more of a cash grab, more than likely, or an attempt to remain relevant. But they probably won't replace the definitive version. Like, maybe it'll get some probably airplay not. that probably. year, or if, you know, people are fans of that thing. But except for, you know, a few, like... Michael Bublé or Harry Connick Jr. There's like some, somehow a few people in the Mariah Carey song, of course, but, you know, have like become a Christmas artist, you know, (laughs) which is a weird thing. Well, yeah, that's a whole other genre of people who only seem to come alive at Christmas. I mean, Michael Bublé is the absolute classic example, but. It's an easy way to make money. Uh, You get a chance to kind of play around with a very familiar song you may throw a little bit of a spin on it make it a little bit more jazzy or maybe up more up uh, you know a little bit more hip but it's very rare that you make a song that kind of breaks through yeah uh, it becomes a song that you listen to repeatedly one way for artists to kind of remind us that they exist you know so even if it honestly if michael buble had not made a christmas album i would have not remembered that he same existed. here he'd yeah, be gone exactly. he'd same be gone here. for me I'm going to be weirdly less cynical about this. I kind of think that a Christmas album is just something that a lot of musicians feel like you've got to knock one of those out during your career. Like in the same way that some actors might feel like they just have to do a one-person show on Broadway because that's just a thing that you need to knock off the bucket list at some point. I don't know why it is, but I do remember when I was playing music and I didn't send around a Christmas song that I wrote to everyone on, on the podcast today, but everyone I knew had a Christmas song. And partly it was because you wanted to get gigs around Christmas time and have something to please the crowd. But it was also just felt like something that one ought to do as a musician is like have a piece of Christmas repertoire. As a slightly less than it. Mark, as the other resident musician. Like, I don't think think David Bowie did a Christmas song just to cash in. David Bowie's different. He's like Prince. He's on a different plane when it comes to his artistry. Like, he never does anything just for money. I'm just trying to think of that duet with Bing Crosby. He did a lot of weird duets. I think it's just like, I'm very famous and people ask me to do stuff. Okay. Like, <laughs> sure, why not? It seems yeah, like there's nothing sure. more. This is not necessarily like I need to, to express the intensity of the season. It's not something that I felt strongly enough about personally. And I have kind of high standards in terms of, I was going to say, in terms of what I feel is worth writing about. But it's really just like what I actually can get myself. I would only do a holiday song as sort of a novelty thing. We did a Christmas show. I we did, you know, a bunch of Christmas covers in it, you know, not that many years ago. But in terms of writing a personal stuff, I feel like it's a real songwriting challenge to actually feel like, what does the season mean to me? And like think about it deeply and write a deeply personal thing that Sufjan Stevens, I think you shared one of the things, you know, he's had multiple records of Christmas albums out because it's something that it's a time for family and, and feeling things and, and was able, but he thought that the canon as presented is mostly dreadful. And so like reworked things and came up with his own very emo versions I don't know if that's the right word, but nice acoustic versions. One of the interesting things I think about Christmas music as as a genre is that it's just a subject matter and there are so many different ways that you can approach it. It's like saying that there are Cold War songs or World War I songs or whatever. Usually when you pick out a genre, it describes something about the attitude or the musical style. But like Christmas songs can encapsulate everything from Bing Crosby to Run DMC. And they're both like saying 
I mean, in the case of Bing Crosby and Run DMC, maybe they're not ultimately saying very, very different things about Christmas, but certainly Sufjan Stevens. But like the the Run the Jewels track that you shared, Lawrence, I'd never heard before, and that was absolutely amazing. And that's like, it's a Christmas song, but the only thing that it shares with any of the kind of standard Christmas carols that we talked about is that it is about Christmas. It's not remotely similar in like musically to Bing Crosby in terms of anything it was trying to say and maybe that's that's what's appealing about it as well you can as an artist if you're Sufjan Stevens you can remind everyone that Christmas is a miserable time for everybody if you're Tom Waits you can remind people that you can remind everyone that everyone needs to receive a Christmas card at Christmas I love that the uh, like a song I was looking at um, listening to some of the different iterations of Santa Claus is coming to town and I love that everyone seems to have put their spin on that song in so many different ways. And some are more successful than others, but it does sort of pull in not just the same song or message, but it brings in different eras. It brings in different genres. It brings in children's voices, a very, very adult voices. And I find that really, really interesting. I love hearing that. And the same song can strike me in so many different ways. One of the things that I love about Christmas music, because typically when you think about Christmas, like you look at Hallmark movies or Lifetime movies, they're just traditional Christmas movies. Typically, it's an upper middle class family, probably a white family. It's going to snow. People are going to fall in love. Someone's going to be some kind of crisis. Everything will be resolved on Christmas Eve. It's always resolved on Christmas Eve. And then Christmas Day is going to be great. And that's fine. But that's not my experience. And so I love hip-hop Christmas music. I love Black Christmas music. So like things like, to this day, This Christmas is a hallmark of a great Christmas song. Like, that is a good song. The reason why I don't like Mariah Carey's song is because it's way too poppy. There's like no soul there. And it really, really drives me crazy. But a Christmas song that has soul that's not necessarily going to be over-the-top joyful, but kind of reckons with the fact that it's kind of a little dark for some people like that speaks to me. That's what I love. And so I love those hip hop Christmas songs. I know we don't talk about Kanye West anymore, but Kanye West has a great Christmas song that he's made a few years ago. Uh, Run DMC, of course, has a great Christmas song. There's like older Christmas raps that are not as successful. But then when you get to the classic stuff like Darlene Love or you get to Earth a Kid or you you know, get to those kind of people like that's soul there. And, and that's what I absolutely love. And I love songs that kind of speak to my experience of Christmas when, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town. Eh, it doesn't speak to me. Or, you know, the other Christmas song thing, you know, Old Tannenbaum. I love it, but it doesn't, it doesn't speak to me. I love those Christmas songs that kind of really articulate a particular kind of cultural perspective. And I think that that's what's great about Christmas music, because Christmas music allows for there to be a 360 degree cultural perspective. So Christmas music coming from, you know, Latin America, Christmas music coming from any kind of place, like it's going to have a unique kind of feel for it. And that's part of the reason why I think Christmas music is so special, even though some of it drives me crazy. Well, like one of the ones you linked for us was the Temptations version of Silent Night, which throws in a bunch of extra lyrics kind of about the brotherhood of man and everybody being respected, you know, some sort of broadly civil rights kind of themes. And it's kind of throwing it in, but it's also like all kinds of notes. Like if you listen to that song, they're all over the place when they sing that song, but it's, it's a great song. Like I will admit that there are some people that I know who do not like that song because they think it's way over the top. So for example, 
there's a Temptations Christmas song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You listen to that. My son, like, he loves it, but he hates it. Like, he makes fun of that song because they're, like, really over the top in how they sing it. Their, their articulation is really over the top. And so, yeah, the Temptations are kind of cloying in how they present that. It's very 70s. But my mother played that song on a record player in the house around Christmas time. And so it has a special place in my heart. And that goes back to what I was saying about Sarah Lynn. Part of Christmas music is the nostalgia it brings because we all listen to it. Um, And you might listen to Bob Dylan Christmas songs growing up. If you did, I'm sorry for you, but that might have been your experience. Or you might listen to, you know, the classical stuff. But nevertheless, it's going to like take you back. The Muppets were great. Muppet no, the Muppets were, that was great. Now, that was good. <laughs> I love the Muppets. This is literally the best version of A Christmas Carol that's ever been The made. Muppets Christmas Carol. Yes, the Muppets Christmas Carol. Mine was the earlier generation was the John Denver and the Muppets Christmas special. Oh, yeah. Oh, John Denver. I remember that's that. That's my generation, I remember too. that. I, <laughs> watching it on, like, VHS, I, you know, that was a little bit before my time. But, like, that is going to transport you to a specific place in time. Run DMC's Christmas song, they're talking about, you know, New York City and what it's like in New York City. There's Christmas music that came out of, out of L.A., you know, from the Death Row Records people. They're talking about Christmas in L.A., what that's like. I think that's cool. I think that's awesome. Now, all the songs aren't good. I don't feel like we have any other real folk tradition that is alive and still permeates the culture in this way. Like, people know songs like Oh, Susanna. It's just songs you teach kids when you're, they're learning to sing. And that's some of the, the Christmas songs you're complaining about. Santa Claus is coming down. They're kid songs. That's all. So the kid songs, or they could be sentimental, churchy things. But then the fact that it's open to Mariah Carey, like actually got something that is in the culture and wham, you know, that they'll probably still be played a century from now. Doesn't Paul McCartney have enough? <laughs> <laughs> What song does Paul McCartney have this Christmas Eve? I don't, I don't know that song. It's 1978, oh Simply Having it's a that, Wonderful Christmas Time. Or, yeah, yeah, Wonderful Christmas having, Time. I cannot right, right, get that right. song out of my head. And that's another thing. Christmas songs tend to be like catchy. They, they tend to kind of be earbuds that get stuck in your head. Yes. I listened through a bunch of the hip-hop ones that you linked to, and a lot of them seem like they're commentaries on Christmas songs. Like that they're not, yeah, you know, they but it's too many words for it to actually be a catchy thing in itself. And sometimes they're kind of like, you know, like if a heavy metal Christmas song or a punk, you know, that I've listened to a whole punk collection of punk bands doing Christmas, they sort of strike me as novelty songs. And so I got the same feeling from some of, not all of the rap Christmas songs is if it's just like, we're making jokes about Christmas time. Not obviously not like the Christmas in Harlem and stuff. Like there's some that are reflecting on, you know, real life experiences, but it's very easy for a lot of Christmas songs in keeping with like kid songs to be just basically novelty songs. This might be a cultural thing because there's a lot of those Christmas hip hop songs that are absolutely catchy. They get stuck in my head and they never leave. Like Christmas in Hollis, like that gets stuck in my head and never leaves. You know, Christmas in Harlem, that gets stuck in my head and never leaves. So maybe some of that stuff might be, this might be a cultural thing there. Mm-hmm. But I do think you're right that oftentimes the Christmas music coming out of hip hop is oftentimes a commentary on Christmas or on Christmas music as opposed to like participating in Christmas tradition. I will agree with that point. And there might not be that firm a line between those. Like one of the ones that gets played around our house the most is the Christmas Can Can by what is the acapella group? Straight No Chaser. It is basically a medley 
I, I don't know. That's that. talking about the commercialization of Christmas and throws in all these things and throws in a little bit of Toto's Africa. I don't know. For whatever reason, that was like a big hit in our <laughs> the Christmas can can. I'm, I'm yes. going to add that to my list. I, I don't know that song. <laughs> I don't know that song either. I have a real question. Does anybody listen to Pentatonics any other time but Christmas time? I mean, I don't listen to them at Christmas time, but every Christmas they are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And then they just disappear. Like, I don't know what's going on with that group. They're the acapella Michael Bublé is what you Yeah, saying. the acapella group. Yeah, the acapella group. Oh, yeah. yes, yes, And yes. They're, like, they're like ubiquitous every yeah, yeah, Christmas yeah. season, but they just disappear. Mannheim Steamroller was a group I was trying to remember that my dad has, <laughs> has groups That's by group. that like, these are not good. <laughs> I mean, but I don't know them for anything other than Christmas music. Uh-huh. Like, that's all that I know them for. Well, there are some genuinely beautiful Christmas songs, original Christmas songs. I mean, that River by Joni Mitchell is, I mean, that one makes me weep like a baby. The Pretenders, 2,000 Miles is beautiful. I was bawling my eyes out this afternoon listening to the Tim Minchin song. I don't know if any of you heard that. White Wine in the Sun is very beautiful. It's about about how family really is all that really matters. Gets me every time. Literally, it actually makes me cry. I'm a a big softie, but it is a very beautiful song. You're such a sensitive thug, Al. You really are. I appreciate it. (laughs) Is there a thing that we want another recommendation in this area that we want to give? And then we can sort of turn to other... I mean, well, I mean, we can talk about Christmas movies because that's a whole other thing that goes along with this. Right? What makes a good Christmas movie and what a good recommendation for Christmas movies. Now, of course, there's the classic Home Alone. I never liked, what's that Bing Crosby movie? Uh, not Snow White. Is that White Christmas? Yeah, White Christmas. I never liked that movie very much. Is that good? Am I just in the minority on this? It's, it's okay. Never cold. seen it. I don't I don't like that movie. I think I've much. seen it a couple times over the years that yeah, yeah I but like I confuse it with Holiday Inn is another one of that where there's like part of like a song for each holiday including one for President's Day with blackface. So like that didn't age well. Like let's Wow. Like, <laughs> what are you watching, maybe, Mark? Maybe that is <laughs> I do want to hear what everyone's favorite Christmas song is. Oh, I want to hear too. Mm. Okay, mine Mark, is easily Fairy Tale of New York, no question. Oh, okay. Fairy Tale of New York, think, interesting, interesting. But I also kind of think one. that's cheating because I put this in the notes. I feel like it's kind of like saying Die Hard is your favorite Christmas movie because it's a brilliant song, but it's only very tangentially about Christmas. Hmm. I'm gonna say Christmas wrapping is my favorite. By the way, really? Christmas. Yeah. So my favorite band in college was XTC. And so they're, they have a song, Thanks for Christmas, which I really like. But it's kind of just like, actually, I feel like it's as good as the other things they do. I was going to say that when your favorite band does a Christmas song, it's like, okay, this is amusing, but I never have to hear this again. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that, you know, stands along with their other catalog. They did not hold back. It was not merely a, a tossed off novelty song. Well, some of these, I think, like for me, if like I love that waitress's song because I could listen to it in July and be just as pleased with mm-hmm. it. You know yeah, what I mean? I could listen yeah. to that year round. Uh, my favorite Christmas song. Okay, so I love what Christmas means to me by Stevie Wonder. I love Someday mm-hmm. at Christmas by Stevie Wonder. I love Merry Christmas Baby by Otis Redding. Give Love on Christmas by The Temptations. Love that song. I love I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus by the Jackson 5. Really, really love Santa Claus Go Straight to the Ghetto by James Brown. I'm going to say, though, that mm. probably, ooh, Santa Baby by Eartha Kitt. Love that song. Oh, yeah. But probably my favorite, favorite of the of the 
bunch. Oh, Silent Night by Temptations. It's probably going to be This Christmas by Donny Hathaway. I think that's the one that I wrote the article about because that song has been so copied by so many different artists, white artists, black artists, and no one's really been able to kind of capture the magic of that song, except for his daughter, Layla Hathaway. So I'm going to say This Christmas, but it's, I love all those Christmas songs, like all of them. Can I confess that I had not really registered that song this Christmas? Like I saw it on your list or I saw it on one of the lists and I was like, it sounded a little familiar, but it's not for some reason been ever at the something that I've specifically focused on or was really aware was like clearly part of the canon as opposed to, you know, just something that came out in the 70s. It is part of the black canon, but Mm -hmm. I, I think to be honest, like to be acquainted with that song, you have to be around a lot of black folks. Because if you go to any Black Christmas anything, party, dinner, whatever, and they don't play this Christmas at that dinner, it's a fraudulent dinner. Like, the food's bad. (laughs) You're going to get poisoned. I mean, everybody loves that song. And they know there's a a particular part in that song. Say, shake a hand, shake a hand, shake a hand. Like, everybody knows that part. So it's just kind of like part of Black Christmas. Here's the question that I have. Why don't we have Thanksgiving songs? Why does Christmas get all the love? We have a little bit of love for Halloween. Thanksgiving gets nothing. What's up with that? I just was watching a YouTube thing today that was saying a one horse open sleigh, which was the original title of Jingle Bells, was a Thanksgiving song. It was, was about, it really? It was about I had no idea. Sleigh races at Thanksgiving, but then they wanted to reperform it at Christmas and change the lyrics a little bit, and then it became a Christmas song. So they stole the. <laughs> there you go. What would have been the most like, popular remember- Thanksgiving song? I remember Adam Sandler, he has a Thanksgiving like silly song, but no one's really had a like a Thanksgiving song. I, I mean, you know, I always wonder why that Adam was. Sandler has a Thanksgiving song? I didn't Absolutely, know that. yeah. Yeah, Google. Yeah, the, the Hanukkah song. It's a silly Thanksgiving song. Over the river one. and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. There you go. There's a Thanksgiving song, I believe. <laughs> well, there aren't enough. Is that a Thanksgiving Hanukkah song? song? I think so. <laughs> it's, not a it's through the snow. <laughs> It's not sung at Christmas. There are definitely not enough Hanukkah songs. I mean, it's True. really embarrassing that basically you just have dreidel, 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 and that's basically it. Though, as I was doing my research today on all the Ronnie Spector Christmas songs, which I love, but he's a horrible person or he was a horrible person, I was reminded of Christmas Time for the Jews. What's her name? Who sang? Is that a Mel Gibson song? <laughs> it was on SNL. It was an SNL. Oh, oh, oh. Al coming this? with the zingers. Whoa, Al. I'm sorry. We're going to pause for that joke. That was a good You already joke. brought up Kanye West, so I had to go back to Mel Gibson. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I feel like the South Park, Just a Lonely Jew on Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that might, that, that might be it. That might be the one. That might be the one. But yeah, it's it's one of those things that apparently Hanukkah is not like actually that big a deal as a holiday within the Jew, you know, compared to other Jewish holidays. But because everybody else is celebrating that time and singing, like make up some more Hanukkah well songs. Celebrate. Like, Let's you do, know, yeah, so we I had think to we could do better in kids' music class. Like we had to throw in some Hanukkah songs. You know, it's more than just the the one. I don't think this is just me being culturally blinkered when I, I say I don't... Darlene Love, that was it. I don't think there's any other religious festival that has anything like the same kind of musical, cultural footprint that Christmas does. I mean, I don't think there's a subgenre of like Diwali songs. I don't know what it is about Christmas. Is it just because of the cultural dominance of a Christmas carol and everything that kind of flowed from that? Or is it a peculiar way of of keeping some kind of like soft religious sentiment alive for everybody and kind of weaving a folk tradition in through the remnants of that's a great question of, of that it's weird 
the fact that we can have something resembling a big discussion about songs about a particular religious festival is weird that that's a thing. Well, and that's something I want to ask you guys about is even though I was saying that I learned a lot of these through church stuff as an adult, I don't know if there's a super Jesus-y one, we might fast forward through it. If it, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't resonate in the same, in the same way. way. I mean, it's hard for me like not to really love Silent Night because like that was the quintessential yeah. in church or just like soft. But in terms of a lot of the other ones that are, you know, I'm, I may be yeah, more resonant. Noel, no. Yeah. Oh, oh, come all ye faithful or whatever, you know. A really Christmassy, yeah. a really Jesus-y. The, uh, <laughs> God rest you, merry gentlemen is one of my favorite, like oldie timey ones. And that's a banger. You were talking about Heart the Herald Angels Sing. That's super Jesus-y. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. But it, it rocks. But that doesn't really resonate with me and my kids that much. Like we're listening to... Rudolph stuff, Santa stuff. Um, right. Well, kids music and then like Christmas party music like that you could turn, Bruce Springsteen can turn Santa Claus is Coming to Town, a kid song into just a rockin' like universal that's a banger. It's, anthem. It's, it's a banger song. It is. And it's also coming from all of those Christmas specials and you know, like mm-hmm. Rudolph and that's true. Peanuts that's- and all of that. That's where I learned, you know, as a kid, I could not wait for those Christmas specials and was happy to sing along to those. And, and that's coming around the 1950s, 1960s. So I, I wonder if, was Christmas as big a deal as it is now back in like the 40s? And yeah, 30s? for sure in the 40s. So Christmas yeah. music for sure. Yeah. Okay, so it was? Because all those, all those like World War II. Uh, yeah. That's right. That's I'll right. be home that's right. for Christmas. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the things that are in the canon are the recordings yeah. from like the 50s. and Because I'm thinking about Al's question and I'm trying to figure out like what made it so mainstream like what made it the behemoth that it is today because i mean it is huge christmases now and i think that he's right that i can't put my finger on why that is because i want to say there's probably the christmas specials from that you guys referencing the santa claus coming to town the rudolph we can go back sooner. I want to ask your, you for your some film history, because obviously we all know and love it. It's a Wonderful Life. But what were the big mm-hmm. Christmas movies before before that? Before that? Well, ooh, uh, I mean, Christmas like, Carol like had like Christmas, versions from the yeah. 1930s. You know, I think there was a version right. from like 1910. I was actually looking into various versions of that this week. Well, before It's a Wonderful Life, there weren't many like mainstream like Christmas Christmas movies. I mean, there was... White Christmas, but that kind of started the Christmas film industrial complex, I think. Before that, I mean, you have your Christmas carols, but those were more avant-garde kind of stories as opposed to like genuine Christmas stories, right? Because if you read that book, that book is not a warm and fuzzy book. It's kind of a dark book, almost horror adjacent, really. It's a Wonderful Life is 46, A Christmas Carol 38, Miracle on 34th Street 47, uh, in terms of the, the really about well, about Babes that. in Toyland, 34. Babes in Toyland, yeah. But that's not a real, like, I mean, it is, but like, that's not a Christmas, like, classic, though. Babes in Toyland. Yes, I'm looking at the description. Maybe it's just me. No, it's saying it's not strictly a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's okay, yeah, I'm about to I'm about to so say. you're probably right. Blame Coca-Cola or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but but like that Miracle on 34th Street, it's a wonderful life for sure. Those movies kind of kick off that Christmas movie trend. And then you have the, the modern classics, of course, with your Home Alones, your National Lampoon, Christmas Vacation, that kind of stuff. Well, I was thinking about sort of these Ur stories that, you know, the It's a Wonderful Life and The Christmas Carol. Those are such iconic plots that then they've, you know, been done over and over again. 
not just in, but like on sitcoms and things like that. And actually, Home Alone. Miracle on 34th Street camps as well. Really? Like the, the, that's the, the Christmas Santa is real, is real. Santa is real after oh, all. Yeah. It's such a huge. I guess, but I was also thinking about like Home Alone created its own, even though it's a pretty recent movie, like it's such a plot of like, I must defend my home against Christmas. And there have probably been two dozen movies. <laughs> That's not, I didn't put that right. I must defend my Christmas home against <laughs> invaders. Go. That would be a great movie, though. Christmas is coming, and he's, he's going to attack the house. <laughs> That's the nightmare before Christmas you just described. That is exactly the nightmare before Christmas. That's very true. Which is another question. Is that a Christmas movie, or is that, or is that a Halloween movie? I mean, that's another question for another day. Is that a Christmas movie? It's, it's a, 100% a Christmas movie. It's a Halloween movie to me. Get out it's of here. It's got a Halloween song in it, but it's a Christmas movie. I watch it's about that how it's every Christmas Halloween. all year round. I <laughs> watch long, that as... every Halloween. It is not a Christmas movie. That is a. I think you're right. Put that on during Christmas Eve, and it will not be a good Christmas. I promise <laughs> you. You're gonna have nightmares. Then. I love that movie, Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh. The last good Tim Burton movie, I think. So speaking of, you know, this connection between oh, the Christmas. Oh my gosh, Al, you're killing me. The last good Tim Burton movie. Really, just gonna <laughs> drop that bomb and just walk <laughs> off. Okay, we'll talk about that another time. Hey, let's take a break. I've got a really interesting podcast recommendation for you listeners today. Retro Zest is a podcast celebrating all things retro, mainly focusing on landmark anniversaries of music, movies, TV shows, and pop cultures of the 1970s and 1980s. Host Curtis Lonclo truly has a zest for retro as he digs a little deeper into the obscurity and minutia of the culture and interviews some very interesting players in 70s and 80s media. Actors who have appeared on the show include Diane Franklin, Melody Anderson, Lydia Cornell, Julian Glover, Lynn Holly Johnson, Jean Louisa Kelly, Jay Underwood, Rick Rossovich, and Heather Thomas. Musicians interviewed by Curtis include Rob Fahey of the Ravens, Michele of Europe, Doug Johnson of Loverboy, and Fee Waybill of the Tubes. Find the Retro Zest podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or at RetroZest.com. All right, the connection between Christmas songs and the media. The one that actually sort of Christmas song that maybe means the most to me is that first Linus and Lucy or whatever, you know, the, not even the Christmas time is here song, but like just the whole, that whole Vince Guaraldi soundtrack mm-hmm. and the opening music to that, which I think is just called Linus and Lucy. Yeah. Where they're just skating around and stuff like that is just gives me an, a feeling that no actual song with words is going to be able to elicit. A hundred percent. I completely agree. I mean, I, as I said, I have it on vinyl and the vinyl is green. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I love that album. It is by far one of my favorite. And and that's another thing. Like Christmas jazz is a big thing, too, because sometimes you don't want to have music. You just want to have the feeling of Christmas. You put on Christmas jazz and it's right there. And that's what makes it so wonderful. I was going to bring up Baby, It's Cold Outside. Does anyone, is, is that a Christmas song? What do we think? Oh, yes, well, it is. Sure. It's, quite rapey. it's quite rapey. It's a rapey Christmas song, but it's a Christmas song. I'm not down with the sex Christmas songs myself. Like even the Santa Baby <laughs> gives me the creeps. And I don't uh, like when every new, baby. <laughs> every new hot singer tries to do a version of Santa Baby. It's, it's like the Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday or something like just. No horny Christmas. Of, I completely <laughs> disagree. You guys are. <laughs> completely wrong because yeah, it's, it's cold you're laying up you're next to people you get a feeling in your in your girth i mean <laughs> look <laughs> there's a great christmas song and i haven't brought it up because it's not it's not worth fighting about 
But I think that one of the best Christmas songs is this song by Boys to Men, written by Brian Knight. It's called Let It Snow. Let It Snow. Um, yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's called Let It Snow. And that is absolutely 100%, if you listen to that song, a horny Christmas song. They are trying to get it going. They're like, baby, let it snow so we can see. The way you're outside is frightful. That let it snow. Absolutely, yes. But yeah. it's a it's a variation on the traditional let it snow to make it much hornier than the original song is. And I love that song. I think it is a Christmas classic. To be honest, I would argue that's one of the best Christmas albums that a uh, Christmas uh, album that Boys Men put out, one of the best Christmas albums in years. I would say it's probably the best Christmas album that's been put out in 20 years, like as a whole total package. It's a really, really good album. There's probably a different discussion to be had just about how horny music works in general. That it's if it's like Earth Kid trying to seduce you, the listener, then how does that relate to you actually connecting with someone you're in a room with? It's like watching porn with your partner or something. Like that doesn't jibe for me. Okay, uh, it's okay. It's definitely not like watching. It's porn sensual, with your Mark. It's arousal because that that can happen. But I will say, I don't think anybody's ever gotten it on to Eartha Kitt's Santa Baby. Like no one's ever like heard that. Like, hey, guarantee that's not true. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna just let that by go. the law of averages. By the law, large numbers. No, it's not. It's not that. the law of averages. He said he guaranteed. I have <laughs> thoughts. I'm gonna let it go. Probably people have gotten on, gotten it on to the Vince Guaraldi, Charlie Brown. Oh my gosh! Don't do that to me. <laughs> oh yeah, That's there's Backdoor terrible. Santa too. There's what? What do you say? By Clarence Carter. Okay, now that I love. That's a great song. <laughs> it's, it's not a it's not a horny song. It's just like a bad song. Like it's it's a, <laughs> a a guy who's like horny and trying to mess around with someone's mom. That's a bad song. It's not a horny song. I mean, we're just saying, as we were saying before, that if Christmas is just a subject matter, then you can take any possible, you know, it's like people could be doing anything on that day and it could be a war song on Christmas or it could be a song about how seasonal affective disorder or or it could be a really jolly thing or I'm angry at you on Christmas kind of, or, you know, it could be a revenge song. It could be anything. So, of course, there's going to be. horny song. Yeah, exactly. We're horny. There's lots of (laughs) subgenres of. Christmas songs. I mean, maybe the most, the most effective, I think I've got something resembling a Christmas song thesis here now. So the thing that makes some of the best Christmas songs most effective is how you can take Christmas as like an emotional, cultural touchstone. Everyone knows how everybody is supposed to feel at Christmas time. And if you take a song which stands in some kind of sharp relief to that sentimental feeling, that's kind of what makes a lot of the more interesting Christmas songs more interesting. So the horny Christmas songs are interesting because you're not really supposed to be horny on Christmas Eve. And that maybe is why a lot of the songs that Lawrence was talking about kind of bite in, in the way that they do. Why aren't you? Wait, 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 wait. I'm not cool with y'all like saying that Christmas is not a time for sex. Like that you're trying to make like sex out to be bad. Like there's nothing wrong with being sexy on Christmas Eve. Get it in and then put and then you go open the presents. That's not that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it's just but it's not a part of the the Dickensian cultural picture of what Christmas is supposed to be about. And that's why I think we need to abolish that Dickensian cultural picture of Christmas and mm. adopt a more modern culture of Christmas that allows for parents to have sex before they open presents with their children. But the way you're going to do that is by is by writing horny songs, which it's only already work been done because it's they have, because they done. have the because they have the sexually muted cultural version of Christmas so, <laughs> to to bounce off of. 
this is going to a place where I imagine that Mark never thought this was going to go. Well, this is, Mark, you were worried we wouldn't have enough to talk This about. is making me think again. So I've, I watched a couple versions of A Christmas Carol. I watched the George C. Scott one and I watched the Albert Finney Scrooge, which mm-hmm. does not have very memorable songs. Just to get that on record, like it's a very famous Christmas musical. And thank you very much. I thank you very much. I just like to thank, like, no, these are not, this, these are not timeless Christmas classic songs. The George C. Scott one, and I know some of the other ones, they lean into the fact that it's a ghost tale. It's, we're going to actually try to make it actually scary, you know, at, at least at the beginning when he's seeing the first ghost, which is a little weird because like, it's still a kid's song, you know, it should be something, but you could lean into like Christmas present. Look at how much love Bob Cratchit and his wife have. Like you could have a horny version of this because you've got, (laughs) you've got built in, you know, he's reflecting back on his life and how he used to have love. And now he doesn't like, there's no reason that this has to be sexually neutered in the way that it is in in Dickens's version. But also though, to Al's point about kind of going against what the themes of Christmas, the feelings that we feel like we're all supposed to have. I think that's why, sad Christmas songs can work so well because you're not supposed to be sad at Christmas. You're supposed to be happy and sugared up. And sad Christmas songs are often just so, that's why they're so effective is because they're going against those expectations. When you have subject matters to write a song about where you have such a clear cultural idea, but then you can easily point to a reality which falls short of it. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking now about like the American dream and the entire Bruce Springsteen over so you get that's a really powerful way to go about writing songs. You take a clear thing that everybody kind of understands at a broad cultural level and point out how real life falls short of it. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yep. I was trying to see if there's a song about like getting cancer on Christmas, and I did find one called "I Want Cancer for Christmas." Wow, <laughs> that's I'll let people look that up for this by Johnny that is, Hobo that and the is Freight a, Trains. That's a Google topic. Oh, I know that band. They're great. All right. <laughs> All right. I think we exhausted it. We did it. We talked about it. Thank you for... And somehow we got sexual. I don't know how it happened. I'm going to blame Al. <laughs> Horny Al's Christmas. <laughs> I think uh, I think that should be a thing. <laughs> baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> that is so baby, rapey. That's so Baby, it's so gross bad. in here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, baby, it's since, uncomfortable since we're here, here. Since we're here, Lawrence, I'm going to tell, tell you why that criticism of Baby, it's cold outside is massively overblown and, and not remotely fair. Because if you listen... Okay, help me understand. Help me understand. If you read the dialogue as a text, what's going on between the two characters mm-hmm. isn't that the guy's trying to trick the woman, is that both of them really want to fuck, but they are trying to figure out how to do that without getting them both in trouble because they're not supposed to be uh, having sex. So she's like, I really must go because that's what you say when you're alone with a guy and he's trying to help her come up with excuses. But why aren't and they? Then by the end of it, they agree. Why aren't they supposed to be having sex? Like, what's keeping them? Are they with someone else? Is that what's going on? Because they're like teenagers in the 1920s or whatever. Huh. Huh. Marital sex is not not okay. There's a really good article about that. Hammers home that point out that you may have already read. So it's not a rapey song. I can therefore listen to this. It's a sexually liberated song. Is the way I would is the way I prefer to look. Uh, it's in Persephone magazine. Yeah, there was an article about it. Oh, cool! I'm glad someone else might. Okay, well then someone I else, don't yeah. feel bad now. Thank you. We can now sing that whole. Well, it's just it's another reading. I think there's probably multiple readings on that 
on that particular song. All I've been exposed to is the, this guy is taking advantage of her reading. Baby, don't go. It's cold outside. Stay here where it's nice and warm. That's, all, that's the only reading that I've ever been exposed to. But I'm interested in that other reading. That's a very interesting take. And those of you who are listening, you now also have been liberated. And you now have an alternate reading on that <laughs> a song. more feminist You're take on, on a song that many feel is a do, little rapey. Do we have complaints about other specific songs? Winter Wonderland, they should write more verses. We'll build a snowman and pretend <laughs> it's Parson Brown. It's not a good enough line to repeat that like three times during the song. That's, that's a dumb verse. <laughs> Winter Wonderland, I think, is more rapey than Baby It's Cold Outside. <laughs> it's definitely a weird one. Winter Wonderland is a strange, strange song. I always loved What Child Is This? because it's ripping off green sleeves. Just pick a different, better song and write Jesus lyrics about <laughs> it. And there you go. You got a really good Christmas song. People should just <laughs> do that more. That's the way we should get more songs in the Christmas canon. Is just I take- actually always hated that the Green Sleeves became a Christmas song because it's such a good jazz song without like tying it to the Christmas season. Like it's such a good song that it should not be considered a, a Christmas song at all. I don't think. Is it a jazz song? Yeah, seventeenth century song. Well, the versions that I know by John Coltrane, you know, Miles Davis, those guys, it's absolutely just a great jazz song. I mean, now of course it may be up to something else historically, but they made it their own. And so I'm, I'm good with what they're doing. Sure. That's a separate <laughs> issue as well. You know, that's a that, whole that, other uh, discussion. That's a whole other discussion. Someday my prince will come. Like that is a great Miles Davis. The jazz guys would take these two simple songs. And like, I recall like later Miles Davis doing the same thing with like, let's take Michael Jackson's PYT and do something like that. And it, I don't know, it didn't, <laughs> It didn't work as well. But that someday my principal call, and this is getting us into a whole other discussion, but that someday my, my principal come is him taking that Snow White song and like mm-hmm. making it a civil rights like commentary on that song and saying, we're going to take this song that was coming from Snow White that you guys love, and it's a white song, and we're going to blacken it up, and we're going to kind of make it our own. And so he's up to something politically with that particular song mm. and what he does with that song. But I said, that's, an, that's another discussion. A great discussion. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, as we're talking about folk traditions, yeah, we were just talking about the different styles. Like for me, the morning of, it's like choral versions, you know, classical versions of Christmas stuff. And then later in the day, it's jazz instrumental versions of the Christmas stuff. And maybe during like the party, then you can put on like the rock covers of Christmas stuff or the classic, the things you've already heard a million times. But like for the actual sublime parts, yes, the instrumental ones of the various sorts are best. Like whether it's Christmas guitar or Christmas piano, Christmas orchestra, like it's all good. It sounds like you need to make a playlist, Mark, and make <laughs> it available to people because you have an entire like day playing. I just with find Christmas the music. existing playlist. I'm actually not that picky. Like just like go look on Spotify for Christmas piano. And like, that's what I will probably run on Christmas morning. I've, <laughs> I've gotten beyond, you know, other than my parents having a specific like choir Christmas album that we would put on but like i don't even have that exact you know attachment to that particular recording in a way because it's uh it's uh it's about the overall song and the feeling it's not about the details of the particular performance which is why to me you know getting too hung up on it must be the bing crosby version of white christmas like just put on any good singer doing it like <laughs> it doesn't make a damn bit of difference to me my mind is still blown by people actually caroling 
in England. <laughs> that that I, I'm, I still haven't come to terms with. You're bringing it full circle. <laughs> we do a lot of weird shit over here, especially at Christmas. So we would normally jump to the supporter only portion. I had said at the beginning, we're just going to make this public. This is our sort of year end thing. We've already said a little about sort of what holiday stuff we've been watching or whatever, but sort of Lawrence, you had suggested we do. Yes, I have a suggestion. And so normally what people do at the end of the year, like I had to do it for a publication, you put together like a list of the top things that you've seen that year. And I'm thinking maybe we should just like share one or two things. It could either be something that came out specifically this year, or perhaps just maybe something that you were exposed to for the first time this year. But what are like your favorite cultural touchstones, like your favorite albums, favorite books? Favorite, whatever, cartoons, whatever. Hmm. I've been so uh, I, obsessed with the World Cup for the past month. I so have that's been, been a, as well. Yes, I have been as well. Yes. <laughs> really? I've been working it. You have? Badly. Yeah, I've been doing some work with it. So I usually hate football. I'm not not a football guy at all, but because I've, I've had to watch every single game for work. So uh, I've been slightly into it. <laughs> interesting interesting mark yeah i think this is going to kick off my soccer year i've had no contact with it whatsoever other than oh like, i've been watching hearing about the news stories about how evil the people that are putting it on are oh that's yeah that's, that's, that's true extent that of my exposure but that shouldn't stop us from doing some sports related things in just other people have to initiate them <laughs> if we want to do sports i can definitely initiate. initiate something soccer related next year I've got a book coming out that's based in the soccer world. We've got Women's World Cup next summer, which I'm so excited about. I'd love to do something based on soccer, football. Plenty of good football movies. Yeah. Um, I actually don't know anyway. any soccer movies. Well, football. See, that's the thing. See, so in, in the UK, yeah, in London, yeah, we, it's, it's football, it. us, it's soccer. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I don't know any soccer movies, honestly. So I would be very interested in... Kind of being exposed to some. Good when things. is Ted Lasso coming back? Maybe we could do. Yeah, something that was supposed that. to happen uh, right now, and it, they put it off. But yes, for sure, let's celebrate that show. That's the way I can get into actual sports things. Honestly, is, uh, I, I actually haven't seen the oh, second season. Yellow Jackets. Sorry, Yellow Jackets. No, no, I've been wondering about that show. Should I watch it? Should I watch Yellow Jackets? Yes, good. Yes, yes, yes. You would absolutely love that show. Lawrence, I think it's the kind of horror that you would uh, appreciate. It is so good. Is it? Is it like gruesome and and like? No, I no? don't think so. Not okay. really, but it's great. Right at the beginning, it gets its cards on the table. Like there will be some cannibalism in here at some point. You know mm-hmm. that. You know that from the first. Whoa! You know, <laughs> wow. from the presentation okay. of the whole thing. That's like it's not going to be a surprise. <laughs> I'm going to check that out because I've been hearing a lot of good things about it, but I never really kind of dove in. I'll check that out here within the next few weeks. One movie that I really enjoyed, it's on Paramount Plus right now, is Smile. I really enjoyed the movie. Mark, didn't you watch that? Or or you were thinking about watching it? I did. I enjoyed that. I like a lot of horror stuff like that. I actually went back. Something got me watching. Oh, because I tried watching that terrible Chucky show, which is should not exist. It's so I mean, I'll probably watch a little more, but like, I just like laughing at how contrived everything is. Like, let's put in a child's bedroom, a giant glass vase next to the evil doll. (laughs) No child has a giant glass vase in their bedroom. It is only the evil doll can push it onto the ground. That is the only only reason (laughs) that it would be there. And there's just endless numbers of things that, but that actually got at me like, wait, who is that actor that's playing one of the parents? So I watched Final Destination, the original movie again. Which was a really good movie in you know, 2000 or whatever. And that's another like Ur plot because then every single sequel is exactly the same as that movie. It's just like Home Alone. 
Like it's so specific that it should never have had a sequel. <laughs> Just like certainly Home Alone 2 is acceptable that it exists, but nothing past that. No Home Alone TV show. Like this is a travesty. You know, the Christmas clauses TV show on Disney Plus, my kids are really into that for some reason. Like they took that whole premise of the Christmas clause and they made, I think, two movies out of it. And they kind of turned it into a TV show here recently. It's on Disney Plus. I mean, for me, it's fine. That is based on the premise of Santa is dead at the beginning. Is that, is that, am I remembering yeah, that right? Yeah, kind of. Like what's happening. You kill Santa, you become Santa. The Tim Allen movie. Yeah, the Tim Allen movie. Yeah. What's happening is that Tim Allen is like trying to retire from being Santa. And so he needs someone else like to take it over, which probably means he's going to die. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But the point is that my kids are really into it. I mean, they kind of really enjoy it. I thought it was pretty. One thing that I really enjoyed, it's not Christmassy, but it is kind of Christmassy. That Pinocchio movie on Netflix was quite good. And I, I know we're going to do an episode about it. I don't want to say much about it. We're going to talk about it. But, but it was rather good. It was one of the best Pinocchio things I've ever seen. Really, really interesting. What is everybody recommending to your friends? Like, are you recommending any particular shows or movies or books? Like, what's the one thing you guys have found you've been recommending to other people, to your friends? I mean, White Lotus is the obvious one. And so I got to say, like, that this second season I thought was so much better than the first season. The first season was good, but now I feel like just uh, Mike White is is the man. He is like a real grown-up auteur at this point. That's a blind spot for me. I tried to watch that first episode of season two and I didn't like it. And so maybe, I don't, I don't know. I just, I couldn't get into it. Then maybe you won't like Yellow Jackets because they both have the same kind of soundtrack of <laughs> creepy stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just like, I, I didn't, I couldn't get into like the rich, poor dynamic and I don't know, it just, it just didn't, it didn't speak to me. Maybe I'll give it another shot, but it's, just, it's not really a horror. It, no, it's more of a soap. Than a horror. No, 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 no. I'm not still. talking about horror. I'm just talking oh. about uh, just the dynamics of the show. Okay. I get All right. The mm-hmm. Dynamics of the show. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to think about it. Al, what are you recommending to people? So, if we're thinking about things that came out this year, it was really, it was really good year for entertainment. First, I, like we covered a lot of really good stuff. Particularly TV. Particularly TV. Really good. Particularly TV. Absolutely. It feels like this is where everything that everyone was kind of making while COVID was happening finally got out. So we had. As well as everything we talked about in the show, we had Severance, we had Andor was also really good. I think I enjoyed Rings of Power more than anybody else who watched it. Nope, I completely disagree with you. I I loved it too. Oh, you loved it too? Oh my God. But I was thinking about the one thing that I've seen this year that I would highlight. It's actually a YouTube show. And I've talked to Mark and some other people previously about my love of uh, Critical Role and what's called Actual Play, which is a weird subgenre of YouTube in which people play Dungeons and Dragons on camera. And this year, and it's been it's been a thing for for several years now. The big like standout show is Critical Role. It's now got its own spin-off cartoon show. They did a short series this year. It was a prequel series, and it's called Exandria Unlimited Calamity. You don't need to know much about it. Except that it's telling the story of the great cataclysm that befell this fantasy world in which all of the the current adventures kind of take place. It's a four parts long. There's about 20 hours in it. It's very, very long. But it is, for some very specific kinds of nerds who might be listening, it's probably, firstly, it's one of my favorite things that that I've seen because it really elevates actual play, watching people play Dungeons and Dragons on YouTube 
to a genuine art form. It's this incredible mixture of extremely talented actors pulling extremely impressive improv chops, all in service of this insane, epic story. And I was honestly more hooked on Calamity than I have been on anything else that I've watched this year, even though it was an extremely good year for TV. So I wanted to highlight it because I think that this is a really interesting kind of subgenre of new visual media. And I think this was the year that it kind of elevated from a weird nerd hobbyist thing to a genuine art form. Interesting. I'm going to check that out, man. I I had not heard of it. Uh, You hadn't shared that with me. So I'm going to definitely check that out. I will say just watch the first 15 minutes and it'll give you a sense of how awesome. Do I have to understand the rules? Because I don't know anything about Dungeons and Dragons. So do, do I need to you understand, need to the understand rules of it? You don't need to understand the rules at all. The thing you have to go in with the understanding is that it's not scripted. It's all improv. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an exercise in collective, in collaborative storytelling. And what's amazing about, what I thought was amazing about Calamity of the kind of artistic muscles that they found to flex within those constraints. It's just super interesting. I'll check it out. I'll do my recommendation real fast. Um, The book Heat 2, really good. Uh, If you love the film Heat, it's really good. The show that I love the most, and many people have said this in in a number of places, so I'm not going to say anything new about it, but Andor on Disney+, Plus, it is by far the best Star Wars show I have ever seen. And it's better than some of the movies. It's far better than some of the movies, particularly when looking at the prequels and the sequel trilogy. Goes in some very interesting places. My favorite thing about Andor is it makes Rogue One better. And it's so difficult to make a spin-off show which improves on the source material just by existing and Andor smashes that completely. And and to be honest, Rogue One is one of my favorite Star Wars movies. Like it's a really good, unique kind of Star Wars story. And Mm -hmm. this show really makes that movie so much better. Like you get so much more context for why he is the way that he is. The big complaint I always had about Rogue One is that that it doesn't give you enough time to care about the characters. Like Forrest Whitaker, for instance, in Rogue One, is like he's there for 20 minutes and you you don't have a reason to care about him. But you can already tell in Andor you're going to go back and watch Rogue One after we're done with Andor and we're going to weep the whole way through. Completely agree. Mm -hmm. The book I've been recommending to everybody now is the book that everyone's been recommending to everyone this year, which is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Have you... Has anyone read that? I have not It's read about... It. I haven't heard of it. What is these, it? These uh, Gen X gamers, these two college students who meet at MIT and Harvard, and they develop one of the most popular games in the world together. And it just follows their friendship through the years. And it is so fantastic. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a gaming type of person, but I love a friendship book. <laughs> and this has been an incredibly popular book. It is It is so, so good. And the show that I can't stop, I, I think this is the show I recommend to everyone. There's no caveats. I think everyone would love this show is Reservation Dogs. That show, again, season Completely two, has agree. been absolutely fantastic. I don't think, oh, if you like this, you'll like that. I think everyone would love Reservation Dogs. That is just one of the best things on TV these days. Well, I have a new to me recommendation that I'm just uh, only about a quarter of the way into right now, but my son had bought on Audible the audiobook for Brandon Sanderson's The Way of Kings. Yeah, it's the best fantasy series that's been written in decades. So I see 2010 is when the book came out, and I just knew of him as the guy that took over when Robert Jordan died on Not That Great Series. (laughs) 
if you get into it and you uh, you find yourself making through the series, I insist on us doing a whole episode about <laughs> that series of books because it's, it's it'll phenomenal. be a movie eventually. You gotta think. So I mean, it's <laughs> actually I should say a series because like this is the, again the kind of thing like Game of Thrones that there's just there's no there are going to be many, ten how books many books have there been? There's for. been ten books. How many books have you, has there really? been? Really, this? this? there are going to be ten. So right, Brandon Sanderson's weird weird character. He writes about a book a year. He's phenomenally productive. The Stormlight Archive, which is the the Wave King series, that's going to be his magnum opus. There are going to be ten books in it. The series is split into two halves. The last book of the first half is due out next year, I think. So he's going to die before it's done. Is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, he's still, he's still super, There's dark. another series of his called the Mistborn trilogy, which is kind of uh-huh. slightly easier to get into and still. Oh, but another, another of the cool things, because one of the reasons that makes Brandon Sanderson kind of a nerd's nerd is that all of his stories take part canonically in the same universe. It's called the Cosmere, and there are links between every single one of it. So you know how like n- nerds since uh, forever have always been trying to headcanon ways in which the different kind of works in, a, in an author's oeuvre connect, and he's just doing it deliberately right from the beginning. I just don't know if I want to experience anything outside of the Willowverse right now. No, <laughs> I can't get myself to watch the Willow TV show because I feel like I have to rewatch the movie, and I don't want to rewatch the movie, so... It will be I forever locked, locked off. I forgot me, that show existed. Is anyone watching uh, Fleischman is in Trouble? No, I'm not. It's on Hulu. Is it good? It's based on a book, like so many TV and movies are these days. But what I found interesting is a lot of these authors are getting into not just writing their own shows, but being involved as showrunners. And these are people who don't have any experience. And yes, I think the author is getting help. But I think it's a growing trend, actually, which I think is really interesting. It's a nice way to see authors getting more money for their work, you know, as they deserve. But the show is actually, I read the book and it's a very good adaptation. But is it good? It's good. It's good. Okay. It's good. Okay. It's, it's Eartha Kitt good. Uh, that's hard. Nah, okay, you're going too far now. <laughs> <laughs> you're going too far. Because I'm not going to record a full episode on this, at least anytime soon, I will. I will also say... This is not by way of best of the year, but I just stumbled to the end recently of Walking Dead. And it ends by saying, we're going to have three more series that continue the adventures of the various characters on this show. So I know not that much was really resolved here. We resolved one place that there has to be some new place with a bad leader that they run into every season or two. And they're a little different than the last one, but you know, they're kind of all the same. This one was supposed to be an elevation of like, this one has thousands and thousands of people in it, but they don't have a budget to have thousands and thousands of people. So it sort of seemed just like all the the rest of the environments that they've been in where there are only five characters among the bad guys that matter. Not a What kind of irony is it <laughs> that The Walking Dead is just a, an empty husk of a TV show <laughs> just shambling its way? <laughs> through the years but mark is it good like is this a good are you saying this is a good thing so the walking dead the graphic novel series Mm -hmm. i actually read that first before Mm -hmm. the show even started based Mm -hmm. on recommendations from podcasters and i think that is a very good series to move forward on and the first seasons of this actually improved in some ways on the series because he said like i didn't know how long the comic series was going to run i made some things happen really fast that Mm -hmm. they just like milked over a whole season and that was good. And, you know, there's a reason that I stuck with it through the end here. 
it was still, for the most part, doing the plots that were from the graphic novel, as opposed to the, the spinoff shows that are their own thing and are much, much worse just overall. So yeah, anything that an author is lurking behind probably has some good ideas. And there's been some competent people involved <laughs> throughout, but I feel kind of worn down. So you do you like know, it. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm if, trying to hammer this down. Like, is, do you like, if this? you're is into this it, keep, this is my ambivalence, you know, so I'm also trying to finish up now Westworld season four, since I'm told that oh that's going to disappear. So bad. Yeah, that's going to disappear from the service completely. Forever, so I have yeah. to watch it now if I ever want to see it. But each one that was season one was so amazing. It's just like, I don't even care now if there's another time jump and something that, you know, is meant to confuse me. I get burned out. There are too many of these shows and they go on for too long, I think. I happily zoned out. Well, you've got to learn to let go because I, <laughs> I, watched, I watched the first of Westworld and I thought it was amazing, but it was super clear to me the way they ended that series, like this is going to go downhill really fast and I just walked away and didn't look back. Very happy with my experience. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I complain when they stop. I had only watched one, one season. If I had only watched the first season, it would have been one of my top 10 greatest shows of all time. It just kept going and it went downhill from there. Second season was really discombobulated. Third season was terrible. It was bad for me. I heard they tried to get it together with the fourth season, but it no, it's lost about me by the then. Same. It's yeah, it had lost same. me by then. Yeah. Like if you set yourself up in the first season with the promise that you're going to solve the mystery of robot consciousness, then that's a pretty big check to write. We agree. And they did not write that. They did not cash that they check at all. Cash it. I mean, <laughs> on a conceptual level, it's been like in these later seasons, what if the whole world were like, you know, Westworld is in season one and there's a, a computer that controls everything or something, you know, and people can be controlled in the same way that the robots were originally. Is that a thing? Like, conceptually, <laughs> yes, sure. I could see people sitting in a writer's room saying like, should we bother to have a season four? Yeah, okay, this is a core idea, but it's just might be my own fatigue that I don't care about these characters so much anymore. What was really compelling about them originally is they've already overcome whatever those initial issues were. So just having the main character from season so one be what mad. So ha what happened with the, uh, did the writing staff change or something? Or did the leadership change, the showrunner leave or something? Like, why do you think it, I never watched actually Westworld, but why do you think there was such a big shift? Is it just that they didn't have anywhere to go? Lawrence, do you know? They could have all the same people and it's just me. Uh, no, the writing staff didn't change. Honestly, I just think that they ran out of story. They tried to string along this mystery and it didn't work with them trying to like make it even more mysterious. I just think they ran out of story. The writing team didn't change. The showrunners didn't change. Nothing changed. Hmm. It should have remained at a high level. It just didn't. I think they had a great idea that was a good show for one season and they mm -hmm. just kept going. It lives in the same bucket in my head as Homeland where you've got what, it just should have been a really, really killer miniseries, but then you just can't oh, yeah. turn down that oh, second yeah. season. I check. gave up on that one. I'm trying to remember if I finished the last season on that. I don't know that I did. <laughs> I think one of the things that's really smart is that they've now realized that there are some stories that are just better to tell mm -hmm. with one season. And so you get mm -hmm. like limited series, but it was coming out at a time where your show was expected to have three, four seasons and it just went downhill. Like not every show can be the wire. Like the wire is consistently a really, really good show, but it was a great first season. I mean, a great first season. 
they just they should have stopped. It's another experience that is just something I've gone through with that my wife and I would we watched. I wasn't that into the Good Wife. I watched a bunch of those. She was way into that, but I, I I watched enough of that. But then when it jumped to the Good Fight, then I watched all those with her, which it started like a pretty strong mm-hmm. legal show, and it's gotten weirder and weirder as it's gone on. So like this last season, they were literally taking psychedelics. And it was like a fictionalized version of January 6th going on, constantly embroiling Chicago's streets underneath. (laughs) And, you know, the liberal lawyers being uh, attacked and uh, just like this, these weird liberal fantasies of like how scary the alt-right could get. It wasn't altogether unpleasant, but it was not what I expected. I'm interested in those that the husband and wife creative team behind that thing, and they've gone on to make this show called Evil that I've started watching a little of. Now, evil, I enjoy. I enjoy Evil quite a bit. That's a really good show. So, but again, my question is, do you recommend it? I just do you don't like it, know Mark? that I have a pure <laughs> do you joy like this in show? almost anything. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> You're so cynical. You're such a cynical man. <laughs> hey, right now, I'm only halfway into 1899, and that is fulfilling my expectations. So as of right now, I'm really enjoying that. Maybe by the time I even get to the end of the season, I'll be like, I don't know anymore. Okay, no, no. Okay, I will say that show is really good. And I will say that I've seen the first few episodes of 1923, I think the name of that show is, uh, the sequel to that show. And it is very good. Wait, I thought 1899 was by the people who did Dark. Or, yes, um, that's what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, you're talking about 1899. I'm sorry, the Netflix show. The cowboy one. I was thinking about 1898. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Now, 1899, I do need to watch. Because I loved Dark. Like, I loved, I, I wrote an article about Dark for the New York Times. I loved Dark. I need to watch that, see if, it's, see if I can get into that one. That was a good example of one that, like, it went just about the right length. Like, it was, again, the first season was amazing. The second season, I'm starting to lose the plot a little, but, like, they built it up enough that it made its way to the finish line of season three, and it was fine. And they stopped it. And that's what more shows need to do. 1899, I do need to watch that. Do you recommend that one? Yes. I, I do need to watch yes. that. Okay, I will check it out. All right, this is probably enough of us uh, <laughs> reflecting on the year. I've had a good time talking to you guys. We did 30 this, minutes of it. 30 minutes reflection. It was, a, it was a good time. Really good time. This is good. Yeah, I've had a good time. All right, thank you listeners for listening, for, for sticking with us through this new era. And we hope you like what's coming up. So long. To you next year. year. Happy holidays, guys. Thank you. Happy holidays. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.